Hi, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. This is Mariana. And Elizabeth. Hi. What's up? Oh, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I told my ghostwriting client this week that we are no longer going to meet for lunch on Fridays because it is not a good use of my time. Did you tell him that? You told him it wasn't yep. a good use of... Oh. Yep. I okay. did. And he seemed to be okay with it. He was kind of riding high off of the fact that he went to a family reunion last week and everybody told him they want to buy his book. Excellent. But so, he knows he has to find a publisher after this, right? Yeah. So, like, he does know that. And I think he wants me to do that for him. But I'm going to tell him when I hand him what will be, as far as I'm concerned, a complete manuscript in three weeks that I will not be assisting him with that portion of his journey. He's going to have to do that on his own. Oh, my gosh. That's... But that was never in your contract. It was not in my contract. My contract is to ha- get him a working manuscript. There you go. There you it go. It doesn't even have to be polished manuscript. It just has to be a working manuscript. There you go. Yeah. Yep. So I-, I need to get busy on mine. I've been thinking about <laughs> it um, because I'm in the like huge drafting phase. Yeah. So, well, you were talking about that you had all this transcribing to do, and. Mine isn't, the project that I'm working on is fiction, and so it's not literal transcription. Right. It's more ideas, and so now I have to flesh them out, and I think I have a good idea about that. And I've been kind of inspired by the speeches I've heard at the DNC about storytelling and the power of story and those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, I can do this. (laughs) But there is a sense that I have to go, for me at least, to write I have to have a writer's tent of some sort and not, not a, not a serious tent, not like a camp out tent, but you know, you know what I mean? You know, we talk yeah. about hiding under our desk, but this isn't hiding under my desk as much as it is, um, going into the cave. Yeah. Or I was going to say self-imposed ISS, you know, like they mm-hmm. give kids that in school. I need to mm-hmm. do some self-imposed ISS. I had ISS one time. What? You di- ser- Are you serious right now? Yep. What did you do? I passed a note to a friend of mine calling our teacher a really bad name. <gasps> and she intercepted it. Oh. Gosh, that would not get you ISS nowadays. <laughs> I've just been talking to some of my teacher friends as they gear up here in South Carolina to go back to school next week. Yeah. Wow. If I wasn't so completely mortified, I actually would have really enjoyed it because they just gave me all my work for the day and then left me alone. Right. And so, like, I got through my work, like, before the day was half over and then I could just, like, read all the rest of the day. I was like, this is kind of awesome. Actually, let's do this more often. Um, (laughs) Except that I was mortified. But But they went straight to ISS. No detention. No. no Nope. Just straight to ISS, huh? Yep. Wow. Um, I was trying to think if I... Well, when I was a teacher, I couldn't, as a teacher, give ISS. It had to go to the principal, and the principal then mm-hmm. decided that. I did, as a teacher, do this trick. I don't know if you ever had a teacher who did this, but I would call parents sometimes from my classroom phone and say, would you like to talk to your son or daughter before he or she gets written up? Mm. 
and sent to the principal's office. And you know what? Most of the time they would say, yes, yes, I would. Wow. That's good that they were that, like, invested. I can just imagine some parents nowadays being like, no, you deal with it. Or would be like, why are you sending my kid to the principal's office? I'm going to sue you. Right. Because we're in that. We're traumatizing them. Right. How dare you? For calling them out, for shaming them, for, yes, doing all this thing. It's a tough gig to be a teacher nowadays. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't know how people do it. I don't know either. So I do have this question about writing in 2016. So if you're setting a book of fiction in a world that's supposed to be modern day, right? So Uh we are going to follow up the conversation that we were talking about about technology and how easily it can date your work. Uh, Okay. But I also have another question. So if you're in the realistic fiction kind of genre... So let's say, for instance, that you're in a school setting and somebody gets in trouble, but it doesn't ring true to what the current expectations or protocol in schools are. Mm-hmm. Or even in a, let's say, in a in a criminal sense. You know, where does realistic fiction allow you to make allowances and where does it not? How do you make those decisions? Well, I think that if you're going to do, if you're doing realistic fiction and you're going to do anything that deviates from what is actually realistic reality, you have to have a good reason for it. You have to like build it into your, um, build it into your world building process. Right. So I was having this discussion with somebody about how you can't just like, you can't just make up consequences for students in school or in the criminal justice system that right. aren't real consequences. You know, right. if you're in the realistic fiction genre, like if you're in the fantasy genre, sure, send Harry to the principal's office and have him write, I will not tell lies. What what it was it? Right, yeah. I must not tell lies. With a magical element. Will. Yeah. So, you know, the person I was talking to about this was saying well, but it makes sense because this and this and this. And I I was like, yes, narratively it makes sense. Like, you've set up the background for this about why this has happened or why this has occurred. However, this is so close to reality that you can't just make up an experience that doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Again, like, it's, I guess, um, it's a... It comes down to how much your reader is willing to suspend their disbelief, um, you know, to get to that point. Because it is fiction. So, I mean, right. technically, you can make anything you want to happen. But And if you're trying to, like, have it in real world, then, yeah, again, you have to explain yourself really well. Like, this is exactly why this happened. And it's a precedent. If it's, like... A punishment or something then it has to be like a precedent has to be set somewhere um like you have to because otherwise your reader will get you know red flag and be like wait a second that would never happen yes but, yes yes that that's what i was trying to say but this would never yeah. happen yes you've set up a context in which that happens but the genre doesn't match you being able to create this if you're going to create this, then you need to have some more elements that allow the uh, or create the world where the reader understands 
this is kind of like our world, but not exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which, and it has to, it can't be like just the chapter before that incident occurs. It has to be from the very beginning. You have to like lay the groundwork for why, like why your fictional world is exactly like the world we live in, but just a little bit different. Which pocket universe do you live in that like, you know, this is the one element that's different in it. It's not the universe in which I'm married to Benedict Cumberbatch. It's the one where, you know, like, and we time whatever. travel. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I asked this because we did kind of watch Kumare. You did? Yes. That's funny. Only kind of? Well, we both bailed because it was too real for us. That I they, see. That we know people who have fallen prey to this, and we also know people who are still doing this in congregations but, and communities of faith. But that's the point. I mean, that's what he was trying to, like, point out and prove. Right, but he's, for <laughs> us, in our experience, in our baggage, it felt like exploitation. Because he was proving that people do this. And we're like, yes, but people do do this, and then it messes up their whole lives. Like, it's not a... But you have to get to the end. Uh, yeah, I might. I might go back. You have to get to the end because the end was like, I don't know. It was very. Um, I mean, it was realistic. I'll just say. So, like, it's true that it does mess up people's lives. Um, but I think. I don't know. I I think that, like, it's a reality that people need to keep being reminded of. So I loved it. I don't know. Yeah, but for us, it had a different tone than, like, Jesus Camp, which reveals that, too. But it's a different... Mm -hmm. It's a different tone, you know? Perhaps. Have you seen Jesus Camp? I have not. Oh, you need to. (laughs) I'm sorry, the dogs are barking. So that's, I mean, I think that's one of the things, like, you want to draw your reader in. And I think it's so hard as a writer to realize how particular you have to be about your words. But the other thing, and I know that for me, as someone who is a publisher that emphasizes social justice issues, I am so, so hard on privilege and stereotypes that exist Mm -hmm. in writing. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I don't let stuff slide. (laughs) <laughs> so I know that some people who submit to Harrelson Press are like, well, I know people who love it. I'm like, that's great, but I'm not, I'm not publishing that mm-hmm. <laughs> until, until you go through as an author with an editor who are, who's going to reveal some of the blind spots that you have, because we all have blind spots Yeah, and pushes you on some of these statements and scenarios that you're creating. Yeah. Yeah, I even flagged that in something I was reading for my critique group where somebody talked about how, like, something was feminine in a derogatory way. And I was like, so why is this bad? <laughs> like, it can be feminine, and but feminine does not equal bad. So you're going to have to think of another way to make it distasteful besides... It was the wrong kind of distasteful. Right. 
So, and I was, of course, in this political season where we had the RNC right next, right back to back to the DNC. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, somebody said something on a, it wasn't on my Facebook feed or anything, but mm-hmm. talking about how feminists don't support the military or don't, <laughs> uh, you know, just like these assumptions and stereotypes. I'm like, you cannot, first of all, you cannot make that leap to say a whole group of people don't do or do do something right that's called generalization and it's not right not cool so when i see this in writing in particular especially from a privileged writer which if you're telling a story that includes minorities poverty and those kinds of things and haven't actually experienced it you got to be careful yeah that you shouldn't but you have to be careful Yep, you have to watch out for what you don't know. And I think that's the same thing that we talk about. You know, we all, as we're writing, have these things that we overuse or misuse or, you know, repetition. And our worldview and our perspective and our experience impacts how we write as well. And that's why Mm. it's so important to get beta readers and a critique group and a freelance editor to go through your work and it needs to be somebody who's not maybe from your same position. Right. Well, especially, I mean, I feel like uh, I feel like Mary Robinette Kowal posted about this recently. Um, like if you're writing about people that are not the same uh, race as you or um, class as you or anything that's different from you um you need to you need to have like a social critique from a person who is a part of that group oh i like the sound of that so we talk about you know if you're writing a historical fiction novel or a historical uh work then you have not only do you have a an editor who looks for you know copy editing and content editing but you also have a content editor now, mm-hmm. having a social editor is very interesting. I like the idea of that. Who looks out for these kinds of things. Because, okay, if you, you can go, point out where you're, like, just being a stereotype instead of, well, you know, there, nuance. Yeah. And there's, um, uh, there's these stories called Miss Pickle Wiggle. I don't, I think I've talked about this a long time ago that we read with our kids. But they're published mm-hmm. in, like, 1982. So they have all of the moms staying at home with cookies on the table after the kids come home from school. And, you know, some people would say, especially being a parent of girls, I'm not going to read that to my girls. Like, that's not cool. Mm -hmm. But you can actually use a work that's old or older to talk about a different time and age. Like, you can do Mm -hmm. some critical literacy work with that. But if you're publishing in 2016, you don't want that to to be where your book is associated, I don't think. Right. Yeah, you have to think about why you're why you're writing certain characters or certain certain genders or whatever a certain way. Yeah, I actually critiqued a a client a while ago on that because they had like this very like boys and girls thing and then they had um, a couple of tribal people characters in their book that were just very I was like what are you trying to do here and like think about the images that you're 
putting out into the world and especially into the minds of children. <laughs> like when it's adults, we can already like read with a critical eye and we probably do. And if we don't, we should. But like when your kids like this is formative, like you can't just say the girls wanted to be in the kitchen all day and the boys were out playing street hockey. Like that's just not OK. But I do think that you can create a world where there is a character in that story that has that mindset and is challenged in some way. And that's a powerful experience. Yeah, that's a great story. But there's a reason that some of the books that we have and books and stories that we have have survived. You know, the BFG or um, A Wrinkle in Time or some of these stories have survived you know, even though our view on race, on sexuality, on race is, is different than when they were published, they've still survived and are still meaningful works. And I think that goes, well, I'm now I'm thinking, well, a lot of those are fantasy, you know? Mm-hmm. They're not realistic fiction that are surviving the test of time. And I do think that this is important to note as you're considering, you know, what technological elements to put into your book and whatnot so yeah so one of the big discussions of course in star wars as i'm sure you know is well you know they have this and they have this and they have this technology but why don't they have a way to communicate from one planet to the other straight to the person you know right. why, why don't people have messaging of some sort so this is a it's been a discussion ever since um the first trilogy you know, where, where, why don't they have phones or, or some kind of device? Like, they have um, the locators so they can tell where they are, but they can't get messages back and forth except through RT2, like, that's the most effective thing. <laughs> you know, where are the owls that deliver the messages, like in Harry Potter? And that's, uh, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting because I'm not sure that at the time the Star Wars world was created that people understood messaging and how that would change so completely that I can text you today and you're in California but even if you go to Spain or even if you go somewhere else I can probably still find a messaging um, app that can get you a message the same day no matter where you are that's revolutionary kind of yeah yeah Um, so I think what was I going to say Well, I think that, I mean, so let's take your example of Star Wars. Um, And the first movie came out in 1977, right? So let's not talk about who else came out in 1977. Um, But, like, that was a long time ago. So looking back at it now, of course we're going to say, why didn't they have this or that element? Um, because we live in an age where we do have a lot more instant messaging capabilities than we ever did back then. Um, and so you have to, you have to be willing to, to let go of some of your ability to foresee what's going to happen in the future. And science fiction does that a lot, you know, like it, it does, predict the future um it i mean it's a favorite thing of people to say science fiction becomes science fact but it doesn't always get everything like it just can't because we just we can't know so you have to 
realize that something that you could think is so cutting edge today, like Star Wars was in 1977, so cutting edge and amazing, is not going to be in, like, 40 years, you know? It's not going to be as strong. It's not going to be as, like, able to stand the test of time, except that the technology is not what Star Wars is about. The characters and the story that they go on is what the story is actually about. So you can't make the technology the central focus of your story or like have your characters rely on it so heavily that, um, I don't know, it, the, you, you just run, you run a risk, right? Like of, of being caught in a plot hole in 20 or 30 years. It's the same as like when you reference pop culture now in your literature. It's funny today, but like three years from now, is it going to be funny? Is anybody even going to remember what that meme was anymore? Probably not. So like you have to think really hard about which aspects of technology, which aspects of um, pop culture or things like that that you include. Because you want to, if you're writing contemporary especially, you want to be as like relevant as you can in the moment but not so relevant to the moment that you like burn your book three days later because nobody gets it anymore and i think that's the point is that if you have characters that are believable and whose interactions are all are authentic then the other stuff kind of gets you know, washed away. Like, we don't... Right. Nobody really questioned in E.T. that the bike could fly. Okay? <laughs> but that was E.T. Like, he made that happen. Exactly, and none of us questioned why because he had this magic of some sort that none of us really understood because it wasn't about that. It was about the connection between him and the other characters in the story and his desire to get home. So yes, make the bike fly, make whatever you need to fly so you can get home because we want right. you to get home because <laughs> that's what the creators of that story did for us is, Oh my gosh, there's no way out. There's no way out. And now there's a way out because he has this power because of the people who cared for him. Right. It's the, Oh, we just, what did we just watch? That was uh, echo. Have you seen it? Mm-mm. It's supposed to be the modern E.T. And it has some of those same elements. Like, that could never happen. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter because it's not realistic fiction. Right. Well, and because you're watching it for the the story, not for the the details of the... And you're watching it for the interplay between these two uh, beings from two different realities. And that's mm-hmm. the interesting part. And so we identify with the people in the reality, but the other character comes from this different reality that we don't really understand and can do this stuff just like E.T. can. And we assume that's true because we're so set in our reality. Mm -hmm. So I think this is an interesting, you know, this is something that writers and film directors and you know, screenwriters, everybody has been playing with is what will the future look like? And it's something that all of us as writers hope that our book is not going to be completely irrelevant. We hope that it keeps selling. I know we talk a lot about the New York Times bestselling list, but I bet, 
even the the New York Times bestsellers would say, I wish that my story would keep surviving. Mm-hmm. That I would have consistent sales because, yeah, I mean, that was a great three months. But after that, nobody even knew who I was. And I think that's – so here's another example. So we just went – we've been – we were watching the West Wing and got distracted. So, but last night after two weeks of the political season that we're having right now, we went back and we watched the West Wing and we saw one of President Bartlett's re-election speech. And we – just looked at each other and were like 12 years. This was what, 12, 15 years ago. And it's the same points that we're hearing today. How did the writers know that this is what we would be talking about, that this show would still be relevant because they didn't know Netflix was going to exist. And that those of us who didn't watch it, were going to be able to, you know, binge watch it on this streaming system that has nothing to do with cable or major networks like no there's no way they could have known that they created something. they created something that was lasting and because they created something that was lasting they created also a community of readers and watchers and viewers who are interested in that and because those readers and viewers and watchers were interested in that then netflix picks up a a series like that and puts it onto this streaming right system that they created so so many of us are worried about the wrong details i think in our writing we're worried about even character names sometimes and i do think character names are really important but you know the little things that we are missing some of the opportunities that we have as writers to really impact and affect change Mm -hmm. lasting change anyways there you go there's my little Soapbox for tonight. Yay, soapbox. Yep, yep. It's all about the characters. Who cares what they're wearing? Who cares what type of cell phone they have? Like, so they have a messaging system. Yay, that's good. It's definitely, definitely, definitely. It shouldn't be the cornerstone of your writing. No, it shouldn't, but I will say that they, because, you know, that takes something for people to notice, and it means that people are talking about what you've created. Mm-hmm. That's powerful, actually. So, I think so, I've dealt with a lot of writers who feel like anytime there's a question about their writing, it's an insult to, to them as a writer, in my opinion, though, if somebody's asking you a question about something that you've written, it means that you've piqued their interest in some way. They want to continue a conversation, which means they're interacting with what you're writing. And that reignites the whole creation process because suddenly what you're writing has impacted and come to life for someone. And now there's a new creation, a conversation, even a debate, you know? Mm-hmm that's occurring over something that you started. You started that creation process. That's pretty cool, actually, when you think about it. No? It's true. No, it's true. I agree. You don't want those reviews, huh? I do. You want all of them. The good, bad, and the ugly. All of the reviews. Even though I'll probably cry about the other ones, but... Well, that's okay. I mean, that's creating something in you, though, too. I mean, that's, <laughs> true. these things aren't always bad. You know, we're so frightened of fear, imposter syndrome, or 
or these things. And that just means that we're authentic beings, you know, that we're interacting with the world instead of just, I don't know, being robotic. Yeah, it's true. We're not just skin. We have the organs and we have the tear ducts and we have those things. It's pretty awesome. Yes, some of us would like to not have them, but yes. We do. We have them all. I was trying to find that article. I cannot find that article that I was thinking of. Oh, yeah? Yep. Oh, well. Do you remember kind of what it was about, or could you describe it to us at least? Uh, it was, well, it was a post I saw from Mary Robinette Koala, and I can't remember if she wrote it or if someone else wrote it, but it was about, um, uh, it was about diversity in, um, and I think it was about sensitivity. Maybe that was what it was about, sensitivity in writing like how to be sensitive to the other because like when oh, you're writing maybe, maybe this is it um sensitivity readers and why i pulled a project yes 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 that's it Okay, so she says, before you approach a reader, and truly before you can even start the project in which you plan to represent a marginalized community, it's good and important to want to represent people who are outside your experience, but it's hard work. And you have to be willing to kill the project. If you aren't, then you're just asking for a stamp or of approval or someone to blame. Mm-hmm. Culture is not monolithic. No, it's not a monolith, excuse me. You need a variety of people from within that community. One person alone won't do it. This is like asking me to be sensitivity reader for white culture. If it's set in the South, sure. But a book that is set in North Dakota? Not a chance. I've driven through the, I've driven through the state. Right. Internalized oppression is very real. People in positions of privilege tend to not understand how someone who is demographically part of a group might have views that are consistent with the dominant group. She says, it's exhausting. You are in a position of power as the writer. I know it doesn't feel like that, but see the line. But see what she was talking about. Oh, she says, so, sorry. So see and make sure that you own your mistakes. Mm -hmm. When you screw up, and you will, you have to own the mistake. It's on you. It's no one's else's fault for not catching it. Why was I just reading? This is reminding me of something about um, a book that I heard about on NPR and there was something that was revealed about the whole project that a reporter found brought it to the author and the author had no clue no idea and it was talking about something like this that he had misrepresented um, an experience in some way because he had been depending upon solely upon one person's perspective of that experience Mm -hmm. and the reporter did some research and found out no, actually, that person who you're, whose story you're recounting has good reason to portray this other person that's involved in the story in a bad light to save himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the author had to make the decision whether to print it or pull it. What yep, and if you, I mean, you can, you can, I mean, you can 
print anything, right? So, like, there's nothing to say that you can't print it. You just have to be aware because you're going to get... You're going to get pushback. You're going to offend people. You could lose readers. Yeah. Well, and going back to our previous conversation about teachers, you could get sued. You really could. It's true. Um, not that that should ever necessarily prevent you from writing something, but, but reading, that's a really good article. It's linked in our show notes. This is Thinking Out Loud. Uh, 119 or 120? We'll see. I think it's 120 this week. Well, actually, only uh, 118 Thinking Out Louds have been published. We do have a mysterious episode (laughs) of Thinking Out Loud that will appear at some point but has been hidden. That's true. That's true. That will come to light, (laughs) which is pretty fun. It's amusing. (laughs) So what else are you thinking about? This is what I've been thinking about. I kind of dominated. I do apologize (laughs) for that. That's okay. But I knew as no. an editor that you would have uh, you would have encountered this. Yes, definitely. So as an editor, how do you approach that conversation with people who perhaps haven't seen it in their own writing? And what reactions or, shall we say, range of reactions have you encountered? Uh, usually people are thankful. Um, occasionally they're just a little, like, confused. Like, what are you talking about? Because they just don't, they don't understand. Um, Most of the time, and I mean, this is, you know, it's a thing that, like, when, when I have people assign the contract to work with me, I talk about the fact that, you know, as author of your work, you get to make all the, you get to call all the shots here. I'm not calling the shots. I'm telling you what my professional opinion is of your writing, of content, of grammar, of whatever, and it's up to you to implement the changes that I suggest. That's right, They're yeah. just suggestions. So when I do, when I make a critique like that of something that my, that tickles my feminist um, senses um, or, you know, my uh, sense of what is racist, which, again, I'm a white woman, so, like, I sit in a place of privilege and I don't always see everything the way that I should, but I do see a lot. Um, I, I usually, I'm, I say to people that, you know, this is who I am and this is where I'm coming from. And so this is how I'm going to read what you write. And there are a lot of other people that are like me. And are going to read what you write in this way. Yes. And so you need to think about if that is what you intend for people to understand from what you're writing. And if it's not what you intend, you need to change it. And uh, beyond that, like, there's nothing I can do about what somebody writes, right? Like, it's it's their baby. And if they want to be offensive then I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight them too hard on it because they'll have already paid me by that time. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm like just going to. But it's not your job to print or not to print. Now, where our roles differ is that I do get to make the decision about whether Harrelson Press gets, you know, publishes. Right. That or not. And so I'll. Right. You know, I've had Which is a little bit different argument. Yeah. And I've had people come to say to me, well, I've had it reviewed and they don't find this historically inaccurate or they don't find. Um, this offensive or you know 
whatever they say. And I say, that's great. I'm still not going to publish it. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, people will get upset about that. And that's okay because I have to also do as an editor in chief what I believe holds true to Harrelson Press. And if that's, if that work doesn't align, it doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean that you won't sell books. That's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying nope. this isn't the publisher for you. Right, exactly. And welcome to the world of publishing. That's the way that works. Yes. And All every, the time. And every publisher has a different kind of personality based on not only the books they have published, but based on, you know, their look at the future and where that what role they want to play in the publishing world. So it really is like um I I don't want to say a dating game. It's like that mm -hmm. um what's the process that doctors go through where they have to like do the matching thing for after they go to med school they have to match uh, or or like sororities or fraternities where you have to match or you know do wait, that, that kind of thing. That you call rush. Rush, right. I know what sorority and fraternity stuff is. I don't. I don't know about the doctor thing, but I, I mean, matching. I guess you call it, or like matching? vetting, something like that. Anyways, but it's I'm you know I'm looking for a publisher that will publish this and that gives me this amount of distribution or this amount of publicity or whatever. Great, go for it. Yeah, you know, and I think so many people think that by being rejected by a publisher that they they're being told that they're not a good writer or that their manuscript isn't worth publishing. And I'll, I would say probably 95% of the time it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with either what the calendar on the publisher, the calendar of the publisher and what books they already have lined up or publications they already mm -hmm. have lunch, or number two, the personality of the publisher and it just doesn't fit. Right, exactly. Which is why you should go to events and meet people. Yes, and meet like Network. And it's another reason why there can be so many publishers in the world and so many independent publishers right now. Yes. This is a really cool time to be in the publishing world because there's such a vast, you know, variety of experiences. And mm -hmm. if you don't find a publisher or you don't want to find a publisher and you just believe so much in this work that you self-publish it, go for it. Seriously, right now, you, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing between you and your readers. The veil is lifted. So go reach them. But if you don't have someone who's asking these tough questions about your work, you're going to get hammered by your readers instead of by your editor. And that's something that you want to avoid. Yes. Which you might still get hammered by your readers. That's okay. But it, you want it to be. At least in my opinion, you want it to be for things that you kind of know might upset people. Right. You want it to be on purpose. There you go. Thank you. It's later Definitely. here on the East Coast. <laughs> oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost the end of July. I cannot believe it. Ariana. I'm having such a hard time understanding <laughs> this. I think it's all the end of July. I'm supposed to have my book finished being revised at the end of July. So I better get to work. I have like 100 pages left. Ah! 100 pages. That's good, though. Yes, yes, yes. Good for you. Yes. So tell me what yes. you're reading. Are you reading or are you editing your... Um... 
Um, well, I, I still read, but I'm like reading the same old things that I've been reading. Like I'm still reading, um, rising strong Strong, and I'm still reading, uh, nobody wants to read your shit. Um, and, and those are the, the two that I'm kind of on right now. Um, and then I have a giant queue of things in my Kindle just waiting and looming, um, and begging for me to read, but I'm just, I've been really busy, so. <laughs> I've been busy. Doing lots of stuff. Getting ready to go to New York City in a couple of weeks to give this revision talk with Gabriella. Um, oh my gosh, it's going to be amazing. And then I'm going to be finished with this book soon and have people giving me critique on it. Um so that I can finish, finish it. <sighs> and coming up with new ideas. Because that's that's the thing, right? You gotta come up with new ideas. Always th- be thinking about what the next thing is you're gonna write. Oh, I, I was hoping you were explaining. That's why I kind of left the silence hanging there. So I what see. you will write, or I was thinking what projects you might take on. Because you're gonna uh, you're gonna be finished with your book. You're gonna be finished with the preparation for New York, and you're gonna be finished with your ghostwriting project. What are you gonna do? Well, I mean, I have plenty of editing projects that are looming as well, so I'll be working on that kind of stuff. But then I, mean, I think writing wise, though. Oh, well, then I have other stuff like uh, thinking out loud book to work on. Yes, very. And good. then I also have. Um, I had a, it's kind of a contemporary romance with a little bit of a twist um, idea that I'm probably going to flesh out for November for National Novel Writing Month. Look at you Um, making plans. I know. So then I have to start like brainstorming that a little bit more. Um, Plus, like, I got to get my act together on my blogging. Um, I kind of let it fall by the wayside for a while. Yes. Yes, which I think I'm actually going to activate the RSS feed on my MailChimp so that it sends my new posts to my newsletter list. There you go. Or you can just do a highlight at the end of the week. Yeah. Of all the blog posts you've done. Yeah, just like once a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of sending. Mm -hmm. Which right now I am only posting like once a week anyways on either blog so that's not that big a deal but but yeah so there's projects 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 everywhere there's always work to be done yes there is plus i um i was i told this to noah last night and i was like kind of scared to tell him this but now i'm gonna just like broadcast it to the whole world because you should know like just how um egocentric and narcissistic I am um but I I want to win a writing award someday so like I need to hurry up and like write a whole bunch of stuff so that I have things to submit places because I don't I haven't submitted anything so all these awards that are not coming to me right now are making me bitter but like like, they can't make me bitter if I haven't submitted anything for them so I got some work to do (laughs) especially if you have trouble introducing yourself as a writer (laughs) Well, that's true. That's Baby true. steps to the door. Baby steps out the door. A little bit at a time. 
Um, so, I'm reading this book called Moral Disorder by Margaret Atwood. Uh-huh. It's a short story book, so I'm really excited. I mean, how can you not like that title? It sounds nice. I mean, That's I, it. I liked the stone mat. I like the stone mattresses, so. Yes. So if people want to talk to you about uh, writing awards or your book, how, it, how it's coming along, how can they get in touch with you? You can find me on the web at writingrefinery.com, um, on Pinterest, Goodreads, uh, Facebook, and Twitter at Writing Refinery. I'm on Instagram at writingrefinery22. Um, and then I also have an author website, elizabethkaufman.com. Um, and you should go there for updates. I'm going to be hopefully very soon doing a cover reveal for Chasing the Wind. So if you, you might want to sign that, up that was for the my title email of list. her book that she just yes. revealed just there, just now. <laughs> yes. So uh, sign up for my email list so that you can be ready to see the cover of the book, which should be hopefully in my inbox in like the next 24 hours. Yay! Yay. So anyways, and what about you? Where can they find you? You can find me on the new and approved HarrelsonPress.com. Our new website is up. We're so excited. It has streamlined our ordering services and hopefully will be a lot easier. Um, or you can find me at Harrelson Press on Twitter, Harrelson Press on Facebook. You can also find me over at Mariana.net where I, where I write about uh, religion, women in ministry, all kinds of things. <laughs> Being a parent, those kinds of things. That's my, that's my personal um, site. But I would love to talk to you about anything. But please know I will try to reveal your privilege <laughs> and your stereotypes and assumptions. Moral disorder. What can I say? <laughs> well, I'm so excited. So next week when we talk, it'll be the end of July. So we have to get going. We have important work to do. Yes. So see you next time. Bye. Bye.